Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. This session, Lives Are Raised, was part of the University of Newcastle's New Thinking series at the 2019 festival and centres on the history of LGBTQI conversion therapy. The panellists are James Bennett, Stuart Edzer and Anthony Venn Brown and your host is Marguerite Johnson. Thank you for coming to our panel on uh, Lives Erased, um, a very intimate and incredibly personal panel. Uh, so thank you for your bravery in coming and thank you to the bravery of my panellists. I'm Marguerite Johnson and I'm a historian, a cultural historian at the University of Newcastle and while I mostly deal with ancient sex, I have a very strong interest in modern sex as well. And I'd like to, um, for those of you who don't know, I'm going to give you a quick definition of what conversion, aversion, reparative therapy is, which is um, uh, intervention in, in one's sexuality. It has a long history, as my friend and colleague James Bennett will talk about. Uh, it has a very long history. Uh, so converting you um, from something that's innate, natural, beautiful, um, and, and trying to tell you you're actually somebody else and something else. It has many forms. It affects um, our community, um, particularly gay conversion therapy, um, but there's also trans conversion therapy as well. And um, I'm sure that Anthony and Stuart are going to, to elaborate on the different types throughout the hour we have. Um, and it's received a lot of press recently, particularly with um, two memoirs, uh, and both of them were made into films. You probably know uh, recently Boy Erased, which was originally uh, a novel based on uh, an autobiography, recently a film, and The Miseducation of Cameron Post, uh, a coming-of-age novel, as James likes to describe it, um, that's also been turned into a film. My panellists are James Bennett. On my left is a historian at the University of Newcastle and a graduate of the University of Melbourne. James's research includes transnational and comparative histories with a focus on Australia and New Zealand, labour history, medicine and sexuality, World War I and history through film. James's most recent publication is in the Cambridge Journal of Medical History, and it was concerned with the medicalisation and the demedicalisation of homosexualities in the 1970s, with particular reference to the practice of aversion therapy. So James has, is an archivist and takes a long time to actually get one pristine article out <laughs> about the very complex complex history so it, it you know this is slow beautiful deep research where uh, and I also refer to James's research as research that has an activist element because James's research has impact and he's telling stories that need to be told um, then we have right on the far right uh, Stuart Edzer is a counselling psychologist in private practice in Newcastle uh, he has a generalist practice, 
but has particular interest and expertise in both anxiety disorders and LGBTIQ issues. In 2012, Stuart actually was at uh, the Writers' Festival. Uh, he published his first book, which is amazing, Being Gay and Being Christian. Um, you can be both. And I've got too much stuff, haven't I? And um, <laughs> so uh, that book is still in, in press and it has had extensive international um, coverage, which is fabulous for um, this story from an Australian perspective especially. Um, and he has spoken regularly on this topic uh, to both church groups and the wider society many times. He's an advocate for mental health issues and for greater acceptance of LGBTIQ people and argued assertively in favour for marriage equality for Australia during the Marriage Equality Survey of 2017. He argues strongly against so-called conversion therapy and its acceptance in the community on the grounds that it is harmful, ineffective and philosophically wrong. He's a writer and blogger, so look him up, and also works yearly in the medical faculty at the University of Newcastle, teaching students counselling skills and on issues around the interface between homosexuality and clinical practice. He's putting the finishing touches on his autobiography. Mm -hmm. It's been hilarious talking to these two, Stuart and Anthony, who just sound like James and I, I've nearly finished this book, I've nearly finished this book, and I thought, <laughs> this is yeah. disease that's everywhere. And he's revealed to me a sneak peek of the probable title, and it's going to be out next year, um, The Fight to be Stuart, How Sexuality Saved Me from Religion, which James and I cannot wait to read, and I, I'd assume Anthony Van Brown can't wait to read either. So, that was a lovely segue into the one and only Anthony Venn Brown, author of A Life of Unlearning. Now it's in its third edition and Anthony will be signing copies of the book uh, available downstairs after this session. In a former life, Anthony Venn Brown was a high-profile Pentecostal preacher. Woo! Praise the Lord. <laughs> uh, speaking regularly in Australian megachurches, as you got a taste. His autobiography, A Life of Unlearning, details his 22-year struggle through gay conversion therapy, exorcisms and marriage, trying not to be gay. And I dare you to read this book without crying at least once. As the first Australian conversion therapy survivor to tell his story, this opened a floodgate of responses from readers with similar experiences. So what you see before you are three men who, um, you know, live and breathe writing to, to have impact for the better. Um, since 2000, Anthony has worked extensively with people experiencing faith sexuality conflict and brought greater acceptance and equality in Christian circles. He is the founder and CEO of Ambassadors and Bridge Builders International, which is a fabulous organisation, and check it out on the web, and has been recognised for his contribution several times, including twice voted one of the 25 most influential gay and lesbian people in the country. 
And I love this last bit. Two other claims to fame. 2018, Anthony was named one of Australia's poster children for sin. Yes. <laughs> it gets better. By the infamous God Hates Fags Westboro Baptist <laughs> Church. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> And he's the oldest living religious conversion therapy survivor in the world. Anthony is finishing his book as well uh, out next year, The Quest to Cure Queers. So I am completely honoured to have these three men here today. And let's begin. There's going to be time at the end for questions. <clears throat> and I'm going to open up, first of all, to the panel members. I'll begin with James, then Stuart, then Anthony. And I'd like to ask them how each of you became involved from different perspectives in this area of research and writing. And we'll start with James. Well, thank you, Marguerite. Well, I guess I need to start with a, a confession, which is not to say anything about any religious affiliations I have, <laughs> but ra rather than that um, uh, I, I actually come to the issue of conversion therapy uh, quite recently. So I don't have the, the, the long and deep connection that both Anthony and Stuart have. But as Marguerite was, was outlining, um, there was a, a longer history um, of trying to suppress or change people's sexuality. And this really goes back, for me, to the mid-20th century, to the 1950s and 1960s. And I became fascinated in a particular case. It's a landmark legal case in New Zealand history. It's called the Parker Hume case. Uh, this happened in 1954 uh, in the city of Christchurch. Um, in the, in the film, this was also turned into a major feature film by Peter Jackson. Um, th this is actually the film that really catapulted Jackson into, you know, mainstream filmmaking. So before that, he'd been making these sort of cult films like Meet the Feebles and Brain Dead and so on. But Heavenly Creatures was really his, his first um, serious mainstream film. And... Um, the case is actually around two girls who commit matricide. Um, it's a murder, uh, and they kill the mother of um, uh, one of them. Um, but in and, and there's a whole lot of surrounding scandals as well. Um, and one of those scandals is actually about the sexuality of the two girls. Um, now, as you watch the film, and I've watched it many times, um, the camera, there is, there's a session um, in the, the doctor's surgery. This is before the murder actually happens. And the doctor is interviewing one of the girls, Pauline Parker. Um, and it's like a re religious confessional. It unfolds like a confessional. And you see at one point the camera, Jackson's camera, zooming in on the doctor's mouth as he can barely articulate the word homosexuality. Ho, 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 homo. So it's very, a very stuttering attempt to um, enunciate the word. Well, I have to tell you that that doctor was my grandfather, um, Dr. F.O. Bennett. Uh, so he was the doctor who had interviewed Pauline Parker, um, one of the girls who 
um, later was involved in the murder, and then later also um, interviewed the two girls. And he turned out to be a major witness for the defence in the Supreme Court trial uh, in Christchurch. Now, this case ca came seemingly out of nowhere for me. I mean, it was the 1990s. I was um, a research student at the University of Melbourne. I was actually doing something completely different. It would be years before I would come back to this as um, a, a kind of teaching and research interest. But um, I remember having a, a conversation with my aunt who said to me that um, my grandfather was completely ignorant of homosexuality at this time, as I think most medicos were in the 1950s. I mean, I think they barely understood what this phenomenon was. Um, and certainly there was no um, positive or very little positive medical literature about homosexuality at the time. So he was very much the rule rather than the exception. But I was able to find quite a lot of evidence by trawling Supreme Court uh, trial transcripts um, and uh, there was a lot of very detailed reporting of major uh, court cases in those days. And I also managed to find um, some correspondence between um, himself and his wife, who was actually travelling overseas, my grandmother at the time. But he didn't write... I mean, he was a published author as well um, and wrote an autobiography, but he never said anything about the case. So um, I, I came to this completely fresh. I had no idea about the case in the 1990s, and some, I think, would argue that the Parker Hume case is, is actually a repressed memory in Christchurch. Um, so I think, really, this was a history I could never simply ignore. Um, it was something, in fact, that really drew me to this area, and particularly looking at medical interventions. And in fact, from the 1950s, if you're looking at behavioural uh, techniques that, that were adopted, um, you need to go back to Czechoslovakia, um, where aversion therapy techniques were developed that spread to the UK. And then you had medicos who came out from the UK, like Dr Basil James, to Otago University. Um, and he, he, in fact, is one of the medicos that I look at in my most recent published article about aversion therapy. Uh, in New Zealand in, in the 1970s. And, and, and that decade, a hinge decade of medicalisation and, and forces kind of moving in the direction of demedicalisation at the same time. Um, and so I, I kind of got to the end of, of that article that came out in, in the journal Medical History um, last year, early last year. Uh, and then suddenly, at the end of that project, I began, and this is the, the confession, I guess, that I began hearing about conversion therapy. Now, this did happen at the same time as marriage equality uh, was, you know, uh, really coming into play. And, and I, it seems to me that there is also the issue of um, marriage equality being a rallying point for conservatives who, who really were beginning to feel that sexual politics in the country uh, were undergoing a major change. And, and so I think it was a moment when we began to see a lot of publicity about it. And that's, that's when I uh, really began to focus on conversion therapy. But also in thinking about the 20th century stuff, um, after the 1970s, I wondered, well, what actually happened next, which is kind of the point I'm at next. But one of the things that I think is sometimes um, forgotten about 
And this is a major landmark in gay liberation, the 1973 decision of the American Psychiatric Association to declassify homosexuality as a mental illness. Now, the majority of APA members accepted this, but there was a substantial minority who rejected it, and in fact, there were some who went to their graves um, claiming that this was a mistake, that um, it should never have happened. Uh, and what happened to those psychiatrists? Well, there was a fringe group, in fact, who coalesced um, with the religious and, and political conservative groups and with ex-gays, and th this ex-gay phenomenon is huge in America. I mean, it's a, it's a very different history from Australia uh, in terms of ex-gays. But um, there, there really was a coalescing around uh, groups led by a medico called um, Dr. Joseph Nicolosi, and some of you may have seen a television series by Stephen Fry called Out There, in which he goes around to different parts of the world and interviews prominent homophobes. And one of them is Dr. Joseph Nicolosi, this founder of reparative therapy. Um, and, and, you know, Fry is, is very smart and, and very witty, and uh, I, I think it's quite a major moment in debunking Ooh. all of this stuff. But I, th I think the other, the other point I'd make, too, about all of the medical interventions is that, and now we have uh, a plethora of medical bodies in Australia and around the world uh, who have denounced conversion therapy and other forms of therapy to try and change people's sexuality. Um, because like the medical interventions, which were bad science, it simply doesn't work. You can't change uh, a person's sexual orientation. Now, you might be able to change or modify their behaviour, but you can't change their sexual orientation. So I think maybe that's a good moment to um, hand over. Thank you, James. So, yeah, we're going to discuss today, and we could discuss all day, that there are different strands. And as, as James is interested in the medicalisation of it and, and the history of psychiatry, that you could have sort of, you know, be counselled within an inch of your life through psychiatry or psychology or um, medical interventions such as electroshock therapy. So there was a medical history of intervention. Um, and now I'm going to, to turn to um, Stuart and, and ask about how you came to, to this topic. Oh, thank you, Marguerite, and uh, welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming along. Uh, everybody has a, a different trajectory through life. My trajectory happened to be a religious one. I grew up in a Catholic family. I thought I had a vocation to the priesthood. So at the age of 13 through to 15, I went and lived in a monastery uh, and attended what we called then a minor seminary. Um, at, at the age of, oh, well, in the year of 1975, I had returned to Newcastle, uh, disillusioned with that kind of life and that calling. Uh, and I left the Catholic Church and got involved with um, the other side. I started off with the Methodists and then they became the Uniting in 1977. Uh, we eventually left the Uniting and, and I was one of the leaders who founded a church here in Newcastle, which still exists. Uh, they don't have a lot to do with me these days. Um, uh, and got right into kind of uh, fairly what I would call fundamentalist, evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal kind of theology. All right. Uh, now, that's all well and good if you're straight. Uh, it's not so great if you're gay. And I was a, a, a young gay man uh, who uh, eventually, as a result of those theologies, 
which we may talk about uh, in, in a moment. Uh, I became suicidal at the age of 20 uh, and once more at the age of 30. Um, I spent probably the best part of 20 years um, putting myself through what we might call conversion therapy, uh, including exorcism, um, healings, um, various layings, layings on of hands. Um, I um, delineate it all in my forthcoming book, if I get it finished, um, hopefully very soon. Uh, and there's some extensive um, description there of what I did and what I put myself through over that time. The entire time um, uh, mandating a, a celibacy on myself. So I was a very, very miserable, unhappy, deeply, profoundly unhappy man um, uh, to the point where my life eventually began to unravel. Uh, I was quite severely depressed and I sought the help of uh, a therapist. I went along to a psychologist and uh, started to do the work that had been needed to, be, to have been done for over a decade. And um, that was a wonderful, liberating moment. I had an epiphany that I was actually gay. I accepted the category gay, uh, that I was a gay man, that it was never, ever going to change despite my uh, attempts. There is in the liter literature a thing called SOS, or S-O-C-E, which is sexual orientation um, uh, change, um, Efforts. Efforts, thank you. Um, and uh, there wasn't one that I didn't try for years and years and years. Uh, I left no stone unturned. And of course, as James has said, uh, you cannot change a person's sexual orientation. We know that now. This, the, the, uh, the stories from anthropology and sociology, the stories from psychology, the stories now that come through from biology and genetics, all, all um, focus on the one, the one uh, idea that uh, sexual orientation is stable across the lifespan. It cannot be prayed away. It cannot be therapied away. You can't turn a straight person into a gay person and you can't turn a gay person into a straight person. Now, there are other little areas that we can talk about, like experimentation and all sorts of things, but the fundamental uh, basic foundation is there and always has been. So gay people have been around since the time of recorded history. Uh, we've always been around. It seems like there are gays everywhere now. Uh, that's, actually, uh, that's actually quite true, but, it, but, but we are no more in number than we've always been. It's just that these days society has moved on and we realise that a person has no choice to be gay uh, any more than my three straight brothers had a choice to be straight, uh, or my eye colour, or my hair colour, or my height. Uh, it, it just is. So I describe it in my book and, and with clients and in, uh, in writing um, as a psychobiologic reality. A psychobiologic reality. That's it. Um, it's, as, it's as real as a cup of water. It's just is, all right? And uh, there is no changing it. So clearly, um, once I became uh, uh, free in my own life and started to live an authentic life um, and actually found some happiness and then finally discovered love, um, I then turned my attention uh, not only to my theology, uh, which again we might have some ch ch chance to talk about, um, uh, but also uh, 
the idea of conversion therapy, which, um, as uh, Marguerite uh, described in my bio, I, I see as um, philosophically and conceptually false, um, in that you'd, uh, it's based on the idea that a gay person is broken or is diseased um, uh, or has an illness. So a broken person needs fixing, a diseased or ill person needs curing. Now, it's neither of those things. Um, everybody wants four things in life, to live a long life, a happy life, a healthy life, and a fulfilling life. Now, gay people are not precluded from those four things. We are able to live those four things as well um, and as extensively as any straight person can. So we don't need fixing. Uh, we're not a problem. We're not broken. And this has now um, percolated through society to the point now where we can come out so much more easily. Kids are coming out in school, which, you know, had I come out in year 11 or 12, I would have been crucified. Um, these days, it's kind of part of the furniture. And so I became involved in the idea of conversion therapy and um, how harmful it is and how ineffective it is um, along those lines. Mm. So, thank you. Thank you, Stuart. And the, the key thing is, I think, well, there's so many great takeaways from that, but the idea that people regularly say, well, because of the increase in gay rights and humanitarian <coughs> rights and human rights, it's spreading and there's more gay people. And as Stuart says, no, there isn't. The world is a safer place for you to own your sexuality without fear of torture, murder, loss of income, and every other dreadful thing that happened. So it's 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 the testimony to the changing of of the world around us and society, not necessarily an increase because you know you can't catch gay. Um, and uh, now turning to Anthony Ben Brown, what brought you to this topic that's so central in your life in mm. so many ways? Well, um, I guess we need to go back to the 1960s, but looking around the room here, <laughs> half the room weren't even born, <laughs> possibly. So, um, yeah, my journey began um, in the 1960s when I began to realise that I was same-sex oriented, same-sex attracted, uh, but it was never called that then. It was called sexual deviation or sexual perversion, which meant either being institutionalised, um, medical interventions, as James has mentioned, like aversion therapy, um, or jail. Did I mention jail? Mm. No. Yeah, yeah, jail was another, was another option. So uh, this is very frightening when you're um, in your teens in high school um, and having no access to any information or, or anything, and, and knowing two things. Number one, don't you dare tell a soul. Yeah. This must be your secret. And the second thing is you must do everything possible to change that. And so um, by the end of um, uh, my final year at high school, um, I became so depressed trying to overcome feelings and, and experiences that I was having um, that um, I got depressed and attempted suicide and then went to a psychiatrist, which was not a medical intervention, but it was a... Um, he felt that I was going through a stage. <laughs> <laughs> I just need to love my father more and yeah, it would all, it right. would all be better. <laughs> Spend time with your dad. <laughs> um, that's going to be nice and easy. So, um, but, of course, when that didn't work, um, I turned to Christianity. And um, I... Uh, thought that Jesus was going to be the answer 
and that Jesus would forgive me of my sin mm. and Jesus would give me the power to overcome. And uh, then that launched me on a journey there um, in 1971. I was going to exorcisms in New Zealand with, well, top of the range. Like I had, I had the, the number one exorcist in, in New Zealand mm. casting demons out of me. So, you know, I went, I went right up the top. Only mm. the best. Mm. Yeah. Only the best, only the best, yeah. But he failed. <laughs> And he was having affairs when we were in the church anyway. Oh, <laughs> um, and so, um, moving on from that, <laughs> then I came, came back to Australia and entered the world's first residential program mm. in 1972 in Sydney and was in there for six months. After that, I did get married and had two lovely daughters, one of which is here today. That's my lovely daughter there, Hannah. Um, and so, uh, you know, I became a very high-profile preacher. Mm. I was never an anti-gay preacher. You know, sometimes people suppress their sexual mm. orientation. It comes out of them yeah. being very yeah. um, homophobic and, yeah. and, and very anti-gay. For me, that wasn't the case. Um, but I, I, I was constantly reminded that I was gay. <laughs> and mm. uh, you, you can read about some of those encounters in the book. Um, but uh, at the age of 40, I fell in love with a man. And when you're a high-profile Pentecostal preacher, <laughs> you can't do that. No, no, that's a no-no. Um, and uh, so I, I, I resigned from the ministry and I came out. I began to live authentically as a gay man. Mm. But, of course, this was not an empowering coming out. Mm. You know, I've heard Stuart talk about that, that moment where he said, I could use the word gay and own it yeah. and not feel condemned by using it. And that's a very common experience for us, isn't it? You know, from, from religious backgrounds. And um, so uh, this was not an empowering coming out because uh, it was more of a reluctant acceptance of my yeah. sexual orientation. Mm. My belief system and my sexuality were still unresolved. You, you never really accept your sexuality till you celebrate it. Yeah. Not reluctantly accept it, like there's no other choice. And so, um, it took a few years for me to get to that point where I found a resolution between my, my faith and my sexual orientation. Um, and in 2000, I started a, a Yahoo group. Anyone remember Yahoo mm. groups? <laughs> yeah. Um, and and uh, that group was called XXGay. And um, XGays at that stage were just starting to congregate together to mm, discover each other. Yeah. Uh, we, we hadn't found each other up to that point. And I just began using the internet. So that group to four, grew to 400 mm. people. And I was horrified by the stories I was hearing. Yeah. Um, it was a support group. And I didn't know what I was doing, except we were all just telling each other how, how crap our lives were. Um, <laughs> um, and, and then when um, I had the strong sense that I should tell my story, um, which I did, that came out in 2004. Then that escalated that by 100 times, because every day in my inbox, were emails that made me cry, yeah. which began with your story is my story, yeah. and they told me. So from that, that's how I got involved in this. And um, I have been writing, um, challenging, uh, da, 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 all that stuff since 2004, creating support mm -hmm. groups. Um, and another claim to fame is, um, how, many, how many of you have seen Boy Erased, the movie? A few of you, okay. Um, the man who ran the Love in Action program in Boy Erased. Um, at the end of the movie, it says he's now living with his husband in yeah. yes. Texas. I helped him come out. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, so I had the privilege of working with, um, with John Smith um, and, and, and coming out, and he's now living with his husband in Paris, Texas, and I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> and I've ridden in that convertible. <laughs> You converted him or helped to convert uh, Yeah, I, in a coaching relationship, I helped Wonderful. him yeah, come, come out and, and uh, find authenticity. Yeah. yeah. So, three so different, different stories. And just to continue with Anthony, um, because we are part of a writer's festival and, and we all write, um, uh, your autobiography is called A Life of Unlearning. What, what does the title mean and is it connected to conversion therapy? What did you unlearn? Right. Well, um, it's interesting that the title, A Life of Unlearning, came right at the end. Uh -huh. I didn't, I think I was going to call it Rebel Preacher Gay One Man's Journey. <laughs> <laughs> Glad you did it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, bit cliched, isn't it? Eh? Oh, it's fabulous. <laughs> But um, I had a first draft editor, and um, as I was getting towards the end, you know, when you sit down, and we're very privileged to, to spend time reflecting on our lives mm. and put it out there and, and be able to observe it, um, that I got to the end and I went, well, you know what? I, I feel like I've just spent my whole life unlearning everything mm. I've been taught I about myself, that. about God, about life, and da da da. And my first draft editor said, that's a great that's title great. for a book. Yeah. Mm. And, it, and that's, yeah. Thank you. And Stuart, continuing on from this sort of theme, and you spent a life of unlearning as well. Indeed. Um, and now have turned to, to sort of counselling and therapy for people who have been through gay conversion therapy and people also just challenged with coming to terms with their sexual identities in, in a world that still has not completely right. changed and is not completely safe. Um, how do you match, how do you deal with people coming from a Christian tradition still and saying this is a sin? So when they come to you from a position of faith to a man who is a therapist with um, a science background, how do you navigate that mm. clash of science and faith as a therapist? Mm. Well, that's a good question. Uh, and it's not always easy. Uh, the, uh, generally, I would give them the science. I would talk about um, the biology. I would talk about the genetics of, of the studies that we have now. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I would talk about the, the sociology and the psychology, right. and I would try to bring all that together as, as I did in the, in mm, the book. Yeah. Um, there are so many disciplines brought together in, in, in that book. I had one fellow um, from the UK write to me and say, um, you've managed to bring about seven or eight um, disciplines all together in the one book. I've never seen it done before. Um, so I, I'm... I'm proud of the way that worked out and that's been extraordinarily helpful to people. Um, my own conclusion is the church's teaching on gay sexuality is wrong. It's just that simple. I think the church's teaching on gay sexuality is wrong. And because it's wrong, it's hurting people. And it's been hurting people for centuries. It's been hurting people since the very beginning, from the first century all the way through. I think it ignores the science of biology, it ignores the science of psychology, it ignores 
the science of genetics. We know that people are essentially born gay, that this is something innate, that the human brain is probably shunted down a certain path towards sexual orientation, probably in the third trimester of pregnancy. Um, and when a little baby is born, it's neither straight nor gay, but has the potential to be either. Um, if the brain is shunted in a certain way uh, and, it, and it grows up in, an, in, a, in a rich and, and nourishing environment, there's every chance that a, a little pre-gay child, uh, a gay sexuality, will start to emerge around the time of puberty when the erotic becomes conscious. Mm. And this is exactly what happens with young straight people. So young straight boys start to notice girls. They like their lumps and bumps and their smells and all the rest of it. Well, the same thing happens to little gay boys. They, they start to notice other boys and they like their lumps and bumps and smells uh, and they start to feel attracted. You don't just put your hand up and decide to be gay. No. You don't put your hand up and decide to be straight. Um, you don't wake up one morning and it's a great, you know, it's a great epiphany. This, this emerges, this is emergent quality that comes through usually around the time of puberty. So um, you then discover that um, probably 95% of the world is not like you. Mm. That in fact you've, you've been born into a world where essentially most people, the vast majority, are straight. Uh, where they go to straight schools and are surrounded by straight institutions. Now part of that journey of what Vivian Cass called homosexual identity formation, what I call gay identity formation, uh, is that self-acceptance. So, uh, so in a counselling session for somebody who might come along for any kind of sexual orientation difficulties, and I must say that's not so often these days, and that's because of the, the furniture of society has changed a lot since the 70s and 80s and 90s, um, but it still happens occasionally. Um, uh, I would help them into a, a, a place of self-acceptance. I would explain to them that, you know, it's, it's their choice. You can choose to go along a path of trying to change your sexual orientation like I did, but eventually you'll come to the same decision I did. I would suggest you probably try to save yourself all that angst and all those years and maybe start... Uh, some self-acceptance, and I would work with them on self-acceptance um, at, at that point. Before we, um, this session is going so quickly, before we throw it open to questions from the audience, I have a last question for each of our panellists, all of whom are writers, different types of writers, sometimes <coughs> they write on the same topic, sometimes they write on the same genre. Um, thinking about the increase in memoirs um, based on conversion therapy, and the fact that, that people are in the process of writing memoirs here on the stage and, and James is still in the process of, of writing histories of, of conversion therapy from, from an academic point of view. How important, each of you, how important is writing and telling to the healing process connected with conversion therapy? So we start with, with James, then Anthony, then Stuart. Yeah, well... I think it's a great question. And actually, I'd like to draw on something that Anthony mentioned in a, a paper of his that I read. And I, I think the point was that the thing we most have to combat is ignorance. And I think stories are so important in, in combating ignorance. Um, I know M Marguerite and I both loved um, a, a novel called The Miseducation of Cameron Post, which mm. has now been turned into a, a major feature film. And I, 
I have warm memories of the film, partly because we were in a group together. Mm. Um, it was the last film that I ever saw at Towers Cinema, yes. um, and I continue to yeah, lament the passing of Towers yeah. Cinema. Um, but yeah. I, look, I think it's a great novel. Um, the film, a film always has to focus on an idea to be able to carry it, carry it forward, because it's a very compressed version of a book. So really it doesn't touch on the first 200 pages and it, it deals with the conversion camp. Um, but I think it's done uh, l lightly but very sensitively. Um, I, I love both, both the, the novel, um, and I have very little time for reading <laughs> novels, actually, with all the historical tomes I have to um, get through. Um, but the film, I think, is, is very well done as well. Um, I did hear Desiree Akavan, who's the director and uh, one of the screenwriters, actually say that she wrote it particularly for young women so that they wouldn't feel alone. Mm. And I think that's such an important part of storytelling. Absolutely. And James and I were talking about it again last night and um, pointed out that, you know, people have said there's three teenagers in the end of film and book in the miseducation of Cameron Post who just get on the back of a truck and, and hitchhike into nowhere. And some people were saying it's, it's a really um, a sad ending. And in the United States currently, um, the highest rates of, of homeless youth um, are... Queer teen. Yeah, queer yeah. teens. Yeah. So it's it's tapping into a reality, a social reality, mm. where they're thrown out of home. Mm. Um, and so it, it is real. But I, I was saying to James, I saw it as a symbol of hope because I think, not speaking on behalf of the entire queer community in the entire world, everyone has, has a different story. But we also are aware that families are something we make. And out of necessity, historical necessity, a lot of the time we had to. Um, and love makes a family. And that's what, what you know, queer histories have told us. Um, whether it, it's, it's, you know, all of the diasporas all over the world um, of, of, of the young, disadvantaged, hated minorities of gay and Hispanic, uh, black, gay, Hispanic men in New York who began the Vogue tradition um, because they made their own families. And I think, I love to think of the end of, of um, you know, that film and that novel as they're going out and they're gonna make their own family. It's terribly sad that maybe they break forever their blood families, but we know how to make family. Um, so I saw it as really <clears throat> positive in its sadness. Anthony, um, how is writing <clears throat> healing? Uh, writing's not healing. Ah. Yeah. Um, right, uh, people will often ask, you know, was it therapeutic? Was yeah. it, was, sorry, was it cathartic? Yeah. And I have to say no. In fact, it's, it's re-traumatising. Um, and... Um, I did the stupid thing. I've, I've done three editions, <laughs> and, and and written from page one through to you know every yeah, time. Every time, yeah. and uh, I uh, yeah. So I'm I'm very aware of the emotional toll yeah. of, of revealing your soul too, and you know one of the uh, things that um, many of the emails from readers begin with is your story is my story. Yeah. And up until 2004, there wasn't a story available right. like that in Australia. Right. And um, so um, the second thing they say is, thank you for your honesty. Yep. 
That's the second common thing that people say. And um, I wasn't aware, because I never planned to be a writer, um, but I wasn't aware when I was writing how important that was to bear your soul yeah. and to talk about the times you were stupid, the times you, you did dumb things, the times, e everything. You've yeah. got to let it all out there and uh, people will make judgments, uh, people will um, come to their own opinions about certain things, but um, I felt that that was really, really important. Um, some people call it brutal honesty. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, different terms that have been used for it, but um, I'm glad I did it, and it seems to have worked. Can I just yes. read this little thing? So this is why we should tell our stories. Um, we all get Facebook um, friend requests. I get them from big ladies with big boobs. Mm. Me too. You know, you get them too, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Who's got big boobs? Regularly. A fa Facebook friend request from ladies with big boobs. <laughs> Is it a group or individual <laughs> ladies with big boobs? It's famous. <laughs> so right. I, I just don't add people automatically. I, I, I you know, I have this little cut and paste, as which says, you know, oh, look, I, um, if if, if they we've got mutual friends, I just add them. Yes. Yeah, but right. but you know, if I don't know who they are. I check, so I say, oh, look, I, I don't just add people automatically, but um, if you'd like to let me know why, yeah. then I will um, I'll consider it. So I got this response back from a, a, a guy in the US called Matt. He said, I just wanted you to know that you're an inspiration to me. Really a life of unlearning assisted my mental health and acceptance for myself in a tangible way. I used to be on six antipsychotic drugs, and now I'm on only one mild antidepressant. Thank you. It truly did help. I've always been taught that God hates me. I made a lot of friends in conversion therapy. Out of 40, only six are still alive. Yeah. One died naturally, the rest suicide. Your book gave me hope and let me see a truer Christ. Hmm. Hmm. This is why we must tell our stories. Stuart? Uh, sorry. No. It's powerful and it's strong and it's why it's so important to be here and to keep going. And the sacrifice Anthony made in writing the book, we often think of things that are traumatic to the people who are receiving them. We very rarely think of how traumatic it is for the people who produce them. Mm. Stuart? So for me, um, it, it was interesting. In 2012, when I published Being Gay, Being Christian, a lot of uh, readers wrote to me and, at the, and the various book launches as well came up to me and said to me, you know, I've read your book, I loved it, it was really, really, really good, but I especially loved the bits in it where you talked about your own personal life that you peppered all the way through the text. You really should write that out properly one day and, and, and flesh it all out for us because we think it would be um, incredibly interesting and really, really helpful. Um, and, and I would say, oh, well, the thing, thank you very much. And inside I think, oh, no, 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 wait, no, 
I'm too young to write an autobiography. <laughs> not enough. You know, I haven't climbed Mount Everest. I haven't, you know, swum the Amazon or but anything. But you have. Uh, indeed. In another yeah. way. Um, and I, I, I changed my mind uh, eventually, um, as I was saying down in the green room mm. on my honeymoon uh, in New Zealand, um, I decided to start, start the work uh, and to try to write a warts and all version of my story, what happened to me, um, the, uh, the difficulties I went through. Now, like Anthony, I found it a very, very challenging uh, thing to do. I wasn't... Uh, I, I knew I wasn't going to be writing science for a change, which was so nice, um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and that I could kind of g go back into my own style. Um, but um, I found it very, very challenging to kind of trawl over every little aspect from boyhood, you know, you know right through to where I am now and how I was feeling and the, uh, the emptiness, the fear, the, the depression, the suicidality, the worldview that I used to have then in kind of, you know, evangelical charismatic Christianity and uh, all that sort of stuff. Um, I, I had to kind of... Uh, rethink it all um, on this side of the um, of, of that line, uh, and and look back at it and make sense of it from now. Um, so there was always this discrepancy of what I the, the sense I made of it at the time compared to the way I make sense of it now. Um, so Troy, I mean, I, I was in cafes in tears many many times, uh, you know, uh, writing this story. Um, uh, and uh, just kind of going through the pain again uh, uh, of it all, um, where uh, I had to... Uh, I, it's kind of lame, but we all had to be like a, um, a, a grub coming out of a cocoon and turning into a butterfly. Yeah. You, you've got to bust out of the cocoon, and that's really, really hard work when you're told that this is the exact thing that God does not want you to do. All right. So, um, uh, it 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 it's been a a, a a a difficult process. That's why I'm toying with the idea of the the new name is the fight to be stewarded because yeah. it was a fight. Yeah. It was a fight. I, I had to fight myself and fight God, but I also thought I was fighting demons and principalities and powers and the rulers of the world of this darkness and all the rest yeah. of it. You know, which we all personalised. You know, I went into personal helplessness, like like we all do. I think there's learned helplessness in these con um, conversion therapy stuff, and you know, we can talk about it some other time. But um, uh, to tell the story, I think there is um, there is a place out out for everybody that listens to this stuff and and hears these stories that says look, that's my story, or I know somebody, mm. or my brother, or my cousin, or my yeah. sister has yeah. been mm. through this. Yeah. I think people want to know, uh, and that's, that was the overwhelming uh, feeling I got when I wrote Being Gay, Being Christian. We want to hear your story. Yeah. So that's, that was the driving force that um, drove me to pull out the Microsoft Surface and start the first word. Yeah. Thank you. So... I feel like I've been part of something incredibly special and precious this morning and I'd like to extend it even further and share it with you um, if you have 
some questions, but first of all, I'd like to say that each of these men's approaches and stories and journeys are just, for me, um, I feel very honoured to be in the presence of them. And, um, yeah, if you would like to ask them anything, um, I think we have about um, 10 minutes max for questions before um, Anthony will be available to sign books downstairs. Thanks. Um, I just wondered if any of you would like to make any comments or observations, maybe sociologically or even theologically, on what seems to have been the death, the implosion, the, I don't know what, <coughs> of ex-gay ministries sort of publicly with the, you know, exodus apology, et cetera, et cetera. Um, just really what you make of all of that. Okay, I just prompted, you should do that, Stuart. <laughs> um, so I, I, I developed a strategy um, um, from about 2000 on, which was to get people to tell their stories, to counteract the, um, the misinformation, to challenge the claims, etc., etc. So uh, from 2000 to about 2000, so 2000 to about 2000 and, um, 10, I think it was 2010, we announced that two-thirds of the ex-gay organisations had closed down. Um, and I was very privileged to also be at the, at the final Exodus conference mm. in Irvine to hear Alan Chambers, the president, say, we're closing our doors, it's over. And um, so uh, there has been, um, there's been a shift in society. I mean, all the big corporates, have all got diversity and inclusion programs. In sport, you know, there, there's pride games, there's, you know, so when we have Christian conservatives still proclaiming that homosexuality is a choice, you know, you're broken, all these, all these things, um, it's not ringing true with people because they have brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, sons, daughters, work colleagues who are gay, lesbian, trans, intersex, mm -hmm. bi, and they don't have three heads. Mm. I think added to that, the personal stories of people who have been yeah. through ex-gay ministries, um, it doesn't work. So, yeah. you know, uh, the, the wheels always fall off. You can put all this effort in for years and years and years, but down the track, inevitably, invariably, the wheels fall off. It doesn't work. So mm. the... Uh, the the thing was always, it's like Yeats' poem, you know, the, the can't hold at the centre. The thing's going to implode, and it did. I should mention the new book. Yes, please. Yeah. Um, so I'm working on, on uh, a current book, which is called The Quest to Cure Queers, mm. which is a history of um, attempts to change people's sexual orientation, which goes through, which begins in the medicalisation mm -hmm. and goes through to um, the religious. So uh, we're breaking that down, um, and it's a it's a fascinating history. And I'm giving a, a historical perspective because I've actually lived yeah. that entire time. Um, thank you very much for sharing your stories. It was really powerful. Um, so, as a historian in training, I have a pragmatic question for you, James. Um, so obviously the theme of this session is lives are raised and you mentioned that your grandfather was mm. really ignorant to sort of queerness. 
Um, I'm wondering if at all homosexuality, queerness was sort of mentioned in media coverage of the, um, the particular case that you focused on in your um, in this article. Hmm. Uh, it's, that's an interesting question, Hone. Um, I think, to a large extent, the media really struggled to even use the term uh, at the time. Um, I'm trying to remember back now to particular parts of the media. I mean, of course, there were there were sensational um, tabloid rags like the truth. I mean, New Zealand had its own version, um, which was actually more rabid in some ways than the Australian truth, believe it or not. Um, and certainly in later periods, they went uh, targeting uh, politicians who were even thought to be gay or lesbian. Um, and, and certainly in the 1970s, when I'm looking at that era of medicalization, demedicalization, uh, some of the scandals that the Truth newspaper get into, and here I'm thinking particularly about politicians, Marilyn Waring, I think was one of the principal targets, um, astonishing to read from our 21st century perspective. But I think in the 1950s, um, we are looking at, at an even different period when it really was, like a lot of the medicos, including my grandfather, um, struggling to really understand what this phenomenon was at all. So, um, yes, it, it, it was, but sometimes in very coded ways as well. So you kind of had to read between the lines. Um, and, and before that, even more so. Um, yeah, thanks for sharing your stories, they were incredible. I just want to preface a little rant um, with the question of where do we go from here? Because I feel like there's a lot of talk in this panel about the past and, and what's happened, blah, 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 um, which is obviously profound and really important. Um, I also think that in the, in sort of the aftermath of the marriage equality and everything, I feel like the fight for equality, even in general day, sort of f has faded in a weird way. I feel like I, I came out only in this decade and the aggression that I got was like unfathomable. Um, and which was shocking because I wasn't, I wasn't in a religious family. I wasn't like, it was all of these things that were really surprising given that I was like, woo, everything is liberated and I'm surrounded by all of these stories and this personal sort of growth. Um, however, there's still something, I remember after the marriage, the yes vote happened, someone came up to me and was like, you should be so, like everything should be great for you today. And I was kind of like, oh, well, you know, it's 2017 or whenever it was and there's still, why is this even happening? Why was the vote? only 63% yes. Like, I just, yes, it's exciting that we're, this panel is even happening. However, like, where do we go from now? Can I, can I quickly? You go. Mm. I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, the fact that the marriage equality occurred such a short time ago, and I think research is already kicking in about how traumatic that was mm. for queer people across this country, their children, and let me tell you, I know that, their children, their parents, 
their brothers, their sisters, and the fact that our lives were reduced to a postal vote, to me, is something that is still unfathomable, that that was our lives worth, that someone was voting on whether or not to give us the right to love someone and declare that love and have it acknowledged. And I think you're absolutely right. <clears throat> we have come so far, but <clears throat> the fact that um, only one state in this country has banned conversion therapy and it exists in every other state uncontrolled, unpoliced, and, and there is no legal parameters around it, similar with abortion in New South Wales. If something exists in a legal vacuum, it's a very dangerous place to be because it can go either way. And uh, James and I were chatting recently about the idea that um, conversion therapy is becoming more vid sort of virulent again. It's raising its head and it's focusing on the trans community. Possibly, we were suggesting, because there's been another victory, which is marriage equality. So then the campaign has to be become more aggressive. Um, and the fact is, you come out every day of your life, your parents do, your siblings do, your children do, um, we are still not, not where we should be. And I, I am so grateful that you voiced that. I think it needs to be heard. We should never just sit back and think everything's great. Um, and the fact that you know people even said to you, you should be happy, that's not their call. Absolutely, but we're always being told what to think and feel and to be grateful. So thank you. May I have a quick, a quick two minutes yeah. before we finish off? Um, it's a really good question and I think it's true for all minority groups and I also think it's true for women, that every generation needs to be able to step up on the shoulders of the previous generation, just like we do. You know, we, we had the 78ers marching in the Mardi Gras, um, you know, for 40 years ago. Um, gay people, um, LGBTIQ people these days, we stand on their shoulders because they faced jail and stuff like that. I've never faced jail, mm. but they did, all right? Now, I think that happens every single generation. So all, all you younger people need to be, you know, no pressure, but, but, <laughs> but, but you need to be setting, sitting up here on yeah. a panel in 15 years' time yeah. telling the younger people, um, asking the same question to you, what do we do? We have to be very, very careful on hum human rights and freedoms. They can so easily be taken away, yeah. all right? Uh, whether it's uh, sexism and misogyny stuff, whether it's LBGIQ, homophobia stuff, transphobia stuff, it is so easily taken. Yeah. The Conservatives are always wanting to fight back. Lyle Shelton and Corey Bernardi are yeah. already out there. They, they managed to destroy safe schools. Um, they didn't win um, marriage equality, but they're out there and they're trying. They're going to do this exactly the same thing with, uh, with, with the next cab off the rank, which will be conversion therapy in probably New South Wales. Yep. All right, so uh, we, we've all got our part to play. It's not just about the past, it's about the future. And uh, it is, there's always progress, but there is always pushback. And we just have to be aware of it and, and stand our ground. And that's a great idea for a panel, and let's go with it for next year. I'm an ideas person. I'll, um, let's make it happen sooner than 15 years. And I'm sorry, but we're going to have to wrap it up. But 
Um, our three speakers are available to talk to now and to meet downstairs, and thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2019 Newcastle Writers' Festival. Save the date for next year's festival, April 3 to 5, and follow us on Facebook for regular updates.